today on the Beginner Photography Podcast. My style is pretty, I think, unique to myself because when it comes to stars, my entire goal behind it is to have a clean foreground as a that's what it would look like in person with your own naked eye. Welcome to the Beginner Photography Podcast. This week, we're chatting with astrophotographer Justin Anderson about how he chases the aurora. So let's get into it. Welcome to the Beginner Photography Podcast, a weekly podcast for those who believe that moments matter most and that a beautiful photo is more than just a sum of its settings. A show for those who want to do more with the gear they have to take better photos today. And now, your host, Raymond Hatfield. Hey, welcome back, photo friends, to this episode of the Beginner Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Raymond Hatfield, and boy, do we have a good episode for you today. You know, one of the um, when I first got started in photography, uh, when I started taking it seriously, I knew that I wanted to kind of branch out and do just different stuff, right? Photograph the things that interested me a lot, and one of those things was like, you know, it was cool to learn how to use my camera through astrophotography meaning, you know, uh, uh, having a slow shutter speed. Um, it taught me a lot about ISO and even aperture. So today's talk was uh, was really fun. It was uh, it was a great conversation just about, you know, the, 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 the fun side of photography. And it got me all excited again and kind of brought me back to that place. So I know that you are going to enjoy this episode uh, of the podcast with uh, Justin Anderson. But first, this episode of the podcast is actually brought to you by usbmemorydirect.com. So I'm going to be honest with you, uh, as somebody who has been podcasting now, podcasting for uh, more than five years, I, I get quite a few sponsorship opportunities for the podcast. But at the end of the day, I have to, you know, ask myself, is this right for you, the, the listener? Is is what is being offered to be sponsored going to help you become a better photographer? And typically, these are sponsorship opportunities for things like you know, at home meal kits or even socks. And I just think to myself, like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why, why is this even being pitched to me? Uh, and I don't, you know, appreciate those sorts of things. But whenever an opportunity comes up that I know can directly benefit you as a photographer, I'm more than happy to share it with you, the audience. So USB Memory Direct, they specialize in creating custom USB flash drives. And they've been doing it they have more than 50 different styles of flash drives in different shapes, uh, obviously different uh, storage capacities and even materials, and all of them can be customized to have your logo on it, which is super cool. And also, if you wanted to, they even have completely custom-shaped USBs if you're looking for something even a little bit more unique and will fit your brand. Now, I know that you hear me talk a lot about companies like CloudSpot and delivering photos. Uh, to your clients via an online gallery. And while I still believe that those are great things to be using, photography at the end of the day is a service, right? And as a service provider, I still get emails from clients asking, you know, hey, I know it's been four or five years since uh, my wedding, but can you put the link back up to our wedding photos? Uh, so obviously there's there's a need for more than just the gallery itself is that people want to be able to hold on to their photos. And that's why I think USB drives are, are still a very important piece of the wedding delivery or portrait or just any sort of uh, photography service related deliverable. Because when you can give somebody a tangible item, uh, it really means something. So, you know, when we first got into photography, we're used to holding these prints in our hands that we get back from uh, the 
the lab for our one-hour photos, disposable cameras, and holding those photos in your hands is an entirely different experience than, you know, looking at uh, a photo on a computer. So again, having USB drives is still a very important part of, of my business and what I deliver to my clients to ensure just that they're taken care of, not only, you know, for today, but in the future as well, because, you know, something might happen to me, you know, I don't know. And I might not always be there to field those emails to get links back up. So if you are looking to uh, just step up your delivery game as far as your photography services for your clients, then you can check out uh, usbmemorydirect.com. And they even gave a special discount code to save 15% for you, the beautiful listeners of the Beginner Photography Podcast, when you use the code FLASH15, that's one word, FLASH15, you get 15% off of your first custom flash drive order. So check it out. So with that, let's get straight on into today's interview with Justin Anderson. Justin, my first question for you is, when did you know that photography was going to play an important role in your life? Uh, I started taking photos about four years ago. Um, I, I've always had a cell phone in my hands with a camera and just enjoyed taking the photos. But about four years ago, I went up north uh, fishing with my father and I really wanted to take photos of the northern lights when I was up there. And when I did, I, I got my mom's old camera and I just learned how to use it for that weekend. And I went up there and the northern lights were dancing. So I was able to get a few good photos of them. Um, um, and then since then, I after that, I got my first DSLR, and it kind of just sat dormant in my own in my closet, and I didn't do much with it. Um, and then from there, storms started to pick up. I got some photos of lightning, which really brought the passion up and realized that I can make a cool photo of lightning. And then there was no storms one night, and I just started capturing the stars, and I just loved the stars. I loved seeing them, and I've always enjoyed looking up at the stars, always enjoyed watching meteor showers, anything really. And from there, I just really wanted to learn and keep going and perfect that skill. So that's what I just do. I always always go out with just an intent to take a cool photo, and that's about it. Just take a cool photo, and that's it. Oh, my gosh. I wish That's about it, yeah. I wish that, you know, sometimes... I get lost. I know a lot of others do as well in the simplicity of photography. I wish that I could just boil it down to that same feeling every time. I love that. When you went out that first time where you went fishing with your dad, you said that you took, I believe it was your mom's camera, got a few photos, liked them, got back home, got yourself a camera. Was it that trip or was there one photo in particular that you captured and thought to yourself, Hey, wait a minute. I I might actually, you know, have a proper go at this and uh, and, and you know try it for myself. Yeah, I know exactly which photo, and I could share that with you after the call. But uh, I was outside, and my parents—I was with my parents at the time, but they live on an acreage outside of town. So I was sitting and enjoying the lightning show that had just gone by. There's a bunch of really bright lightning strikes. And a few days before that, I had seen something either on Facebook or Instagram of just a really cool spreadsheet on how to take photos of lightning and i was like wow that's really cool i was just enjoying it and then i said you know what i'm going to just grab that camera that's in my closet to see if i can take a cool photo of lightning i set it up a few pictures in and i got a really cool lightning strike off in the distance and i said oh i love this i'm going to go out chasing because i always used to enjoy going for a drive with my dad watching storms so I went for a drive, and I was about three miles from home, and I set up my camera, and I have a, there's a perfect rain uh, shelf in the photo, and then there's a lightning strike that went through the center of the photo. 
I didn't edit or anything because I didn't know how to edit. And that photo came out and I was so proud of that photo. Um, that came up and I believe that was three years ago now. So, and that's the photo that went, wow, I can take cool photos. And then I went out the next, next storm and took some more photos and the next one and just kept going until I realized, wow, this is, this is really cool that cameras can pick that up. Before all this, did, would you consider yourself, um, uh, I guess a creative person or somebody who was interested in, um, uh, visual arts like this? Uh, I wouldn't say so, no. I would say that I was more so enjoying just, I'd have a cell phone and I'd take a photo of a sunset and you'd have, I'd have family members go, wow, that's a great photo. And that would be about it. Um, and then that's really all that I would get. I'm not too creative when it comes to my own personal stuff. I'm incredibly organized, which I think really helps with taking more photos because I can have locations and, and I can look at it now with a creative eye, but I don't think I was born with a creative eye. I think that was developed. But that that first photo or that, yeah, let's go back to that lightning photo, you know, because today I look at some of your work and think to myself, he gets it. He sees it. You know, I know that when you go out, just by looking at your photos, I can tell that when you go out, you can easily visualize the scene and the photo that you want to take. So at some point, that skill developed for you. If you think back to that first photo, was there any sort of thought process as far as composition or uh you know anything i guess more advanced or was it just simply i'm gonna go out take a photo and just just see what happens absolutely no no idea what i was doing i just (laughs) went down i went down a gravel road and i set up my tripod on a nice safe spot that i could pull over and i just started clicking photos just constantly and sure enough that lightning strike happened i did get a cool building in there and like i said i'll share it with you after the call but um, and there is, it is a really cool composed photo, but I didn't think of that at all when I was out taking photos. That wasn't my purpose. I was out saying, I want a lightning strike, and that was it. Yeah, and you got it, and you got it. Yeah. So when you decided for yourself, you know what, I think I'm really going to you know, take this seriously, learn more about the art of photography, and start taking you know, more, more photos like this, what was the hardest part for you? technically to to nail when it comes to you know photographing lightning or 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 the night sky because i you know i know from experience that just you know putting your phone or putting your camera on auto isn't going to do it so what was the hardest part technically for you to to learn there in the beginning i'm pretty sure the settings so the settings itself were not hard i was able to figure out the rules that you can follow the rules that you can break a little bit so those part wasn't wasn't too hard. The editing process of these photos definitely comes in play, and I'm no expert in editing by any means. And I don't think anyone is because there's so many different ways that you can edit a photo that just I can take a photo from three years ago and edit it again, and it looks a lot better. So editing, I think, would be the really tough part that that everyone really struggles when it comes to the night sky. Um, but yeah, I, I say for the settings and focusing and stuff like that, it didn't really, I didn't struggle at all with that because I'm young and I understood most of that already. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it came down to editing and just finding a location that was really cool, um, I follow all the big time photography accounts, the NASA accounts, all these really cool photography accounts. And I looked up to them. But I think that really struggled because I wanted their photos. I wanted to take something really cool. I wanted a cool desert or a nice old building. And I think you have to start off with just very little. Just start with just trying to capture the stars and that's it. So I think you can jump too much into it too quickly, which could really harm your photography and push you back a little bit. 
did you do that like right away? You were were you trying to be too ambitious? Was there a time where you were too ambitious and you know it totally Definitely. fell flat? Definitely. I mean, when I first started out, I think I was a little bit too ambitious. I def- I took a lot of photos and I I tried to get the best possible stars, the best Milky Way possible with the cheapest gear. So, and you still can, but I just I think I pushed really hard. But and I could have very easily burned out from that. But luckily, I didn't. I I was able to push through. But um, I think one of the big things that people struggle with night photography is when you're out. Uh, when you're out taking photos, like for example, I'm out chasing the Northern Lights, I get one or two of those a month. So I only get to go out once or twice a month with my camera and learn. So really, in a matter of three years, you only get a few chances to use your camera throughout that time. Plus, it's minus 30 degrees Celsius out, so you don't want to be out in the cold. So really, the practice part really can be a, a problem because the whole night is great practice, but when you get those uh, photos back to your camera onto your computer that's when you get to look through them and go these photos are really good this is what i could have done differently so that's one of the really hard parts of astrophotography is just that you don't have a whole lot of time if you can get out for a full week during the new moon cycle that's seven that's only seven nights of taking photos yeah. but during the day you can get out anytime you want really Hey, Raymond here. If you're sometimes baffled by which camera settings to use, then I've got just the thing for you. My free guide, Picture Perfect Camera Settings. It's a fantastic starting point for anybody eager to understand the basics of camera settings in various shooting scenarios. And it's tailored to beginners who want to get out of auto mode, providing clear, easy to follow suggestions on where to start with your settings. So whether you're capturing a stunning landscape or a family portrait, Picture Perfect Camera Settings will help you to get off of automatic mode and explore the possibilities your camera offers. Remember, mastering photography settings is a journey, and this guide is your first step. And the perfect resource to guide you towards finding the right settings for your style. So grab your copy today at perfectcamerasettings.com and start your journey to better photos. That's interesting. I had never really considered that fact. I had always assumed, not assumed, but you know, just kind of thought to myself if you want to shoot at night just go out and shoot at night but you brought up an interesting fact there about you know with it having to be new moon that meaning that there's no moon in the sky correct correct yeah you don't want any moon in the sky it depends on what you're going for like the photo behind me uh there was a moon in the sky but it wasn't very bright Mm -hmm. but this is a different kind of this is not pollution clouds which don't really happen at night they happen closer to astronomical twilight so it depends on what you're photographing, but if you want stars, if you want really dark skies, you have to, for one, get away from the bright cities. So that could be an hour drive, depending where you are. It might be even more. You might have to drive three hours. Uh, I'm one of the lucky ones that only has to walk five minutes. Uh, but it really depends because you also don't want a moon in the sky. So any kind of moon can really drown out the stars, but it depends. You can still practice with the full moon. It's just not as enjoyable, really. So you really want no moon, no light pollution around, and that can be really difficult. You might get, you might go out Saturday night because that's your only night off, but it could be cloudy too, and then that means you miss the one night for the new moon, and you have to go for the next month. So practice can definitely be a, a problem when it comes to astrophotography. You just don't get enough of it. What is it about astrophotography that you love so much? Because during the daytime, you know, you don't have these challenges. It's not as cold. If the sun's out, you know, that's actually a good thing. You can get more photos. So what is it about astrophotography that really sings to you? 
if I'm being honest, to start off with, it was hard. And I wanted, I didn't want just regular photos. Sunset photos are cool, but people taking them with their cell phones, I was like, oh, I want that photo. So when I started taking photos of the stars, I love that people looked up to it. I'm like, wow, that's really, I'd love to take a photo like that. So that was really my driving factor immediately was, for one, I love the stars. I just have always enjoyed looking up at them. But for two, people looked at that and went, wow, that's really hard. He must be an expert. I'm, like, I'm an amateur. I'm, I'm not professional by any means. So that was my driving factor. And then now I just love learning about the night sky. I live for the night sky. I'm out almost every single night that it's clear and there's no moon. And I just love looking up at the stars. And I also love taking photos of cool buildings and cool stuff in Manitoba. Uh, my province is pretty boring. People think that Manitoba is the flatlands and it's really boring and there's nothing interesting here. But as you can see by the photo behind me, it's pretty gorgeous. And I love showing that. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. It's funny. Um, so I grew up uh, in like Northern California, and it's very mountainous, and it's it's beautiful. And we have the uh, the ocean not very far from us. And then at some point, I moved out here to the Midwest in the U.S. And I realized right away, I was like, this place is flat. Like, there's really not much going on here. Uh, but I think that it's one of those like grass is always greener type situations. You know, like no matter where you are, people from here are like. Why would you move, you know, from California? But I think having that perspective, there's a lot of things that once you stop and you look at it, you can really appreciate a lot more. Like one of my favorite things out here in the Midwest, in the flatlands, is just simply the clouds are entirely different than they are in a mountain range, you know, where they're probably more drawn out and, and fluffy. So I appreciate that uh, that view and that understanding that you have of the uh, of the beauty of your location. So when it comes to the astrophotography of this, do you think that your do you think that your photography benefits from your location? Do you think that you could do it? Um, I don't want to say anywhere else because you know obviously you you wouldn't be able to do it anywhere else down here in the states. We don't have the aurora and whatnot as as much as you do. So talk to me a little bit about that. Do you think that that played, I guess, your location specifically played a big part in in you falling in love with the aurora and wanting to capture it as well? I think a big part of it. I used to live. I've lived in Manitoba my whole life. I grew up here. I have family thirty minutes down the road. So I love Manitoba. But when I was at the start of 2020, I actually moved to Alberta and I got to live in Alberta in the mountainous range. I got to go hiking and join the mountains and I lived there for about nine months. And then I finally moved back to, to Manitoba to be with my family and be closer. And, and also I love the mountains. I, I would love to go tomorrow for a, a, a trip to the mountains and enjoy take some cool photos. But Manitoba is just home to me. I love the prairies. I love seeing the flatlands. Um, you don't realize how much of a pain mountains can be when you do a, a three-hour hike to get to a cool spot for your aurora to find out there's a mountain in the way. You can't see them. So uh, definitely the mountains help, but I love the flatlands. I uh, I absolutely love it here. Um, I When I lived in Alberta, I actually chased Comet Neowise for 12 days out of the three weeks that was here. So And that was working full-time too. So I would... I'd work from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. From 4 to 7, I would have a nap. From 7 till 9, I would edit a photo, make some supper, make some snacks for the night, do whatever I needed to do. And then from 9.30 to about 4 o'clock in the morning, I'd be out taking photos of Neowise. 
and then I'd be up and I'd sleep from four to seven again. And I'd be up the next morning to work. <laughs> I did that for 12 nights. Like I have that all documented as well on my website, but I did that for 12 nights total. And I loved every minute of it. That was a huge part in making me a better photographer too, because I got 12 nights of experience in one, in a three week span. That's Normally, huge. That's yeah. yeah, that's, that's unheard of. And the moon was a factor in a lot of the photos, but I did get really lucky with the new moon base with Neowise and it really brought out, I got to get uh, flatland with prairies on one side of Alberta. I got the mountains on the other side. I got some really cool photos that I look back on and some great memories and some great lessons. And then now, even though I could go to the mountains and take photos and it's a little bit easier because you have a great mountain and it's a little bit easier to find the foreground there. Here, I just love finding those old buildings, those old locations that you post it and people go, wow, I know that location or that reminds me of home or that reminds me of my uh, my growing up. So I do love Manitoba for it's a lot of history here too. Yeah, that's always a good feeling when you get uh, a little bit of uh, recognition for your photos and you can tell that it really means something to somebody. I want to go back to, you know, going out and that crazy schedule that you just, uh, you know, laid out for me right there. When it comes to capturing, obviously this is, uh, you know, did you say that it was a comment? Is that what it was? Yeah, comment me was. So with a comment, it's here and then it's gone, right? It's a very yeah. uh, defined amount of time. How did you plan for something like that? Was there one photo, like a bucket list photo that you had that you really wanted to get? Or was it an experiment uh, every single night? It was mostly an experiment. Um, I I started out with Comet Neowise because we have lots of comets that go by the Earth, but we don't really, I don't look at them because I don't have a telescope. I, I look at stuff with my naked eye rather than a huge telescope or a zoom-in lens, which I'd like to down the road, but for now, this is what I focus on. And I started seeing some photos of this Comet Neowise. It looked really cool. And we haven't seen a naked eye comet in years. It's been, I think, 20 some years since we've seen something naked eye that was that bright. And I started seeing photos of Comet Neowise and I kind of just brushed it off as an, oh, cool, a comet. That's cool to see it come by. But then I started seeing photos of it pop up in 400 millimeters, then 300 millimeters, then 200 millimeters. Now I have 200 millimeters myself. I can take that photo. So then, 200 millimeters, I saw that one, and I was like, I'm going to go out and take that photo. So I went out, started chasing Neowise, and I saw it for myself with my naked eye, and I was blown away. And then after that, I was in Manitoba for the first little bit of it, and then I, for the first three nights, and then I went back to Alberta. And a friend of mine was in Alberta, and we both said, there's a comet in the air, we cannot sleep. We can't miss any chance. So. Yeah. Basically, we just went anywhere possible. Uh, the one night in Alberta, there was fantastic northern lights. The best northern light show of the year almost. And we went out, we went uh, straight east because that's where the clouds said they wouldn't be. Straight west said it was going to be clouds, but west is mountains, uh, east is flatlands. So we went to a beautiful old barn, set up, ready to go, and it was solid clouds. Mm. And I have a time lapse of there that's just all clouds. I had people calling me from Manitoba saying, I've never seen the aurora this bright before. Uh, There's a comet. I can see it in the middle of the city. I had, we were seeing photos from west of Calgary of great uh, aurora, the comet, the noctilus cloud. It was basically a bucket list shot, and I missed it. And that night really haunts us because we went the wrong direction. But then that night, we also got some good photos of Comet Neowise on the highway and a really cool photo of the Neowise, the aurora, 
and uh, really cool leading lines into the shot, which is one of my favorite shots, just because the story. So, and then from there we went we went west the next night because we wanted mountains this time. So we went west, and sure enough, we got a great uh, great photos of Neowise over a nice pond with a fire off in the distance. And then the next night we said, all right, where are we going to get away from the clouds? So we went north. And then the next night we went to Waterton, which is about three hours one way. Mm -hmm. And we drove down there for just a single night and then came back that night. Uh, so, yeah, we, we drove all over just trying to get as many cool foregrounds as we could, but mostly just the experience of being able to say, I chased that comet. I live for that comet and just a great memory. Hey, Raymond here, and we will get back to the show in just a moment. You know, as a photographer, you want to be able to quickly come up with creative ideas that stand out. So to help you, I put together a list of 46 creative ideas to get you out of a rut that you can download by heading over to creativeimageideas.com. And honestly, even if you're not in a rut, shooting any of these creative ideas in this free ebook will help you to think more out of the box and create something unique and give you that critical real world photography experience. So again, head over to creativeimageideas.com to download your free 46 creative photo ideas now. With that, let's get back to today's interview. When it comes to, I think, astrophotography, tell me a little bit about more your style because I'm thinking if, you know, somebody's listening right now, maybe they haven't gone to the show notes yet to check out your photos, they're thinking astrophotography that's like galaxies, that's stars, that's like deep space type stuff, you know, full frame of just stars. But the photos that you're taking and you're talking about foreground and all that stuff. So tell me more about your your style of astrophotography. Yeah, so my style of astrophotography is called landscape astrophotography. So my focus is not so much the stars, but more so the the landscape around me. So a cool building, a beautiful uh, lake, a pond, something to draw your eye to the photo. And my goal is not is to not have the stars being the, the subject. I want my foreground to be the subject and the stars are going to add to it. When I first started out, it was mostly just I let the stars do the talking. I'd have a flat foreground and just barely a foreground and then just stars. And then finally, I realized that I want my foreground to do all the talking. So that's why I focus so much on my foregrounds. My style is pretty, I think, unique to myself because when it comes to stars, either your foreground is too dark or your foreground is too bright. But then if your foreground is too bright, your stars are going to be trailing or your stars are going to be really noisy. So my entire goal behind it is to have a clean foreground as a that's what it would look like in person with your own naked eye, whether or not you have a little bit of light on to make it a little bit easier. But I don't want noise because your eyes don't see those noise. So I want a nice clean foreground, but then the sky, I want it to be exactly what it looked like. Um, I tend to not stack any photos when it comes to the sky. Uh, this photo behind me is just one single photo of the sky. The foreground is 959 different photos. Whoa. So I stack I stack for the foreground and I instead of stacking for the sky, which a lot of astrophotographers do the opposite. They stack the sky to get a lot of detail in the sky and a lot of or very little noise. But then the foreground is just a single photo that they just stack in there. Mm -hmm. My style is just completely I want a clean foreground and I stack for the foreground and then I'll paint the sky back in. But this is exactly how it looked. If I was to take a picture of the back of my camera at this time, this is the photo that you would have seen on the back of the camera. Just not a, or a little bit more noisy. 
Why is that? You know, in a world where where we, uh, you know, go online and and try to watch YouTube videos and tutorials of, you know, whatever it is that we're interested in, in your case, astrophotography, if everybody's doing it the exact opposite way, what made you say, hold up, I'm going to do it this way instead and see if I like it? Well, just a little bit of practice and just uh, experimenting. I learned this this uh, stacking software or this uh, ability to stack in Photoshop for removing people in photos, just the median stacking. Uh, if you have a landscape and there's a bunch of people walking around, you take 100 photos, you then you stack it, and it'll remove the, the people because they're not in every single photo. Mm -hmm. And then I just kind of started thinking that noise is very random. So I tried playing around with it, and I learned that stacking the photo the same way, but for a landscape, you get a really clear, crystal clean photo without any noise because that noise is random. That noise is moving around like those people would be. From there, I started playing around with it, figuring out, you know, moving into Lightroom, editing beforehand, and then stacking afterwards, and then realizing that this really is a great tool, but then being able to go back into old photos. The, the reason that a lot of people will take a very long exposure. For this photo here, you might want to take a three-minute long exposure at really low ISO, to get very little noise, but a lot of detail in the in the foreground. I used to do that a lot, and sometimes I will, depending on my location and how much time I have. But I find a lot of the time I don't have time to do that. And if I forget to do that and I move my camera beforehand, I go, oh shoot, I messed up. Now I have to make a composite out of that image, and that's not what I want. I want my image to be exactly what it looked like. So being able to use this method, I'm able to go back into old photos of old barns that I didn't take a long exposure photo for and fix that foreground and have a really clean foreground, even though I never took a foreground photo. I was only taking sky photos. But I increased the noise, and then I stack it to remove that noise. Wow. So, uh, so just in case anybody's listening and is not aware, stacking is where you have a series of photos. You take one right after another. And then you bring those into Photoshop. You said you are your editor of yeah. choice. And then you can use all the information from all those photos to remove certain things, right? In this case, yeah. noise from your photos. So if yeah. uh, are you changing your ISO at all to change the amount of uh, noise in the photos? Or you're just shooting at the same ISO, but because you have so many photos stacked, Photoshop is able to find the clearest parts and then remove the, the noisy part of the noise. Yeah, exactly. I just leave wow. the ISO, leave your exposure exactly as is, and then that's it. Uh, for this photo here behind me, I was taking constant one-second long exposures because it was fairly bright out that night. But in those exposures, I didn't have any detail in that in that building behind me. There was no detail at all. It was just pitch black. You barely even see it. So then afterwards, what I did after I was done taking photos, I took 20-second long exposures, and I took eight of them. It was a little bit bright, but that was okay. And then it was still a little bit noisy, so then I stacked those eight exposures, and then that gave me a really clean output of just the building. Then I had fireflies, and all the lights you see on the ground there, they're fireflies. Yeah. So I took every single photo from the night, which was 950 photos from that hour-long session, and I stacked them, all of them, into uh, just a program called Sequitor. By stacking them, I was able to get all the lights of the of the fireflies, and they showed up like star trails. They just continuously showed up wherever the light was. They were there. But then I really decreased the size of that photo, so I wasn't working with a 10-gig file. 
and just completely downsize that file and move that into Photoshop. And that's 950 photos plus the eight photos for the foreground. I just brought in those uh, fireflies for the light and that was it. And then the sky was just a single photo. So that is exactly what you would have seen there if you're sitting all night watching the sky. You'd see fireflies, you'd see that building, you'd see the reflection, and you'd also see the non-delusing clouds in the sky as well as the sunset. So how much of your photos change dependent on the uh, uh, like scenario of that night, like of the situation of that night? Are you showing up and thinking to yourself like, because I'm thinking of this uh, firefly uh, example that you're giving right here. I'm sure that you didn't show up thinking, oh man, I'm going to get some pretty sweet fireflies here like tonight. Like that's what it is that I want to capture. But it happened after the fact. So I guess the question that I'm getting at here is what percentage of your photos are reactionary versus uh, pre-planned? There are two ways to bring home more money with your photography business. You either get more clients or you spend less of the money that you make. CloudSpot Studio helps you keep more of what you earn. With the lowest payment processing fees in the industry, the average photographer will save $300 annually. And that's just more money to invest in essential gear like a new flash or a sweet camera bag. You know, one that is perfect for storing all of the wedding day snacks that you can pack. But it's not just about savings. CloudSpot Studio is designed to streamline your workflow. Easily organize shoots, send contracts, questionnaires, invoices, and you're really going to enjoy the hassle-free payments. So sign up for a free CloudSpot account at deliverphotos.com and... As a bonus, you're going to get access to my exclusive wedding and portrait contracts and questionnaires at no additional cost. Why let fees chip away at your profits? Empower your photo journey with CloudSpot and watch your business soar. I pre-plan for as much as I possibly can. I actually did know about fireflies because this is just down the road from my house and I got in a photo of fireflies the night before. So I knew that they were coming out. They're starting into fly firefly season. And I actually was talking to a friend about how he wants fireflies in his photo so badly. So I wanted to beat him. Uh, <laughs> so when I did set up for a foreground, of course, fireflies were the least of my concern. If I didn't get fireflies, it wasn't going to be the end of the world to me. My goal was those noctilucent clouds and creating a nice balance between the building on the side and then the reflection, but also keeping the sky being adding on to the image because the sky is your is your focus, really. So once I got done, I saw the fireflies happening throughout the entire night. I was standing there enjoying it and seeing the fireflies buzzing around my face, and I knew that they were going to be great. And then that's when I started thinking, how am I going to get these fireflies into my final photo? Um, there's things in the night sky chasing the aurora can be quite difficult sometimes because you don't know which direction to look you start in the northeast you end in the northwest well i don't want i have 15 millimeters that i can use and sometimes 15 millimeters is just too much it's just it's too wide you have too much sky very little aurora and it just really can be boring unless you have an amazing show so i try to go into 24 millimeters or 30 millimeters and try to punch in just a little bit but then you have the problems of what happens if something to your left or the aurora starts dancing to your left i tried not to move my cameras i want to focus on that subject that i'm working with and if i miss it i miss it and i enjoy it with my naked eye um, so that's where i try to get think about what could happen i get one camera facing northeast i get another camera facing northwest uh, there was actually a photo i got a steve 
back in March, which is just a strong thermal emission. And it's basically a force field between the Aurora and no Aurora. And I got a great foreground lined up and Steve happens basically straight west or straight east or straight above you. So it's a little bit more difficult to capture because you're not facing that direction. You want to face north, you want to get the cool show. So I had both cameras set up, one facing straight north, and then the other one was actually facing straight uh, northwest, but with a lot of blank space because I knew that Steve had potential to come back that night. He'd, he'd shown up earlier, so I knew that there was a chance again. So I was like, I want to capture it if it happens, and I was able to capture Steve perfectly. It lined up with the image exactly how I wanted it. Mm -hmm. But if there was no Steve, then I would have gotten absolutely nothing. I would have missed a good portion of the show of the Aurora. So really, it's a matter of, do you want to risk it or do you want to just go with just a cool photo? Right. I guess that's why you got to do cameras, right? Just in case. Just in case. Exactly. I want a third. So yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to do the math in my head here. And let's say, you know, for this photo right here behind you, you said that there's almost a thousand photos uh, stacked into this one shot right here. If you're shooting at like a one second exposure, I mean, even if you're, you know, super optimized, you know, for time and very efficient, that's almost 20 minutes of time right there. You know, that's after mm -hmm. you've created the composition, you've already set up the camera, your settings, you, you know, you put up a tripod. It, does that sound like a short amount of time to you? How, how long does it normally take for you to, okay, let, let me rewind. You show up to a location. What's the first thing that you look for? Well, if I show up to a location, I hopefully have scouted it throughout the day. So I know what I'm looking at. I know that either I have permission to be there or I don't. So I have to sit from the road or I have to sit from wherever. Um, so when I get to my location, I look at what I'm going to be photographing. In this case, this is facing northwest-ish, more north than northwest. And I was looking at it and going, what do I want? What My foreground is straight northwest almost, so I'm going to be focusing on that. Where do I want the building? Do I want on the left? Do I want on the right? There's actually a second building here just to the right of this one. So where do I want this? Where do I want both buildings? So that's when I kind of move around, look at it and see where do I want to set up the cameras. Then I'll take a quick test exposure and see how it looks from that spot, move as I need to, but then line up. The huge part about astrophotography is don't be in a rush. Uh, 20 minutes is actually really fast. I think I was at this location for both. 45 minutes to an hour. Oh, wow. So I just simply sat there and enjoyed it. I just sat back. I always have a lawn chair with me. I just set up both cameras, let them take their photos, and then I sit back and enjoy it. I'll check them periodically just to make sure the settings are still good. That, you know, exposure still looks good. I don't have to bump up any exposure or slow it down or anything like that. But then I just sit back and enjoy the show and I let the cameras just do their work because I've set them up. I don't want to be touching them a bunch and accidentally bump it and then things are off a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I just sit back and enjoy the show. When I'm watching the Northern Lights, I set up both my cameras and then I just sit back and enjoy and I'll just watch, which is the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet. I, uh, um, I, I would imagine that it, having never seen, uh, you know, the Aurora in person, I would imagine that it's uh, that it's an amazing sight to to see. So let me ask you then for, uh, I guess, how, how does the camera setup go? Because uh, it sounds to me, I'm assuming that you have some sort of timer, intervalometer. Um, what's the what's the purpose of that? Just to be able to have uh, a series of stacked images? Is that it? Yeah, so one of the big things about nighttime photography is any motion is bad. So if you don't have a good tripod and it starts to move a little bit, 
that your photo is wrecked. You can't use that photo. So you do not want any motion. So you want a good sturdy tripod. But another thing is you don't want to shake your camera. So if you have your camera, you have your hand on the, the button, the shutter, and you press that shutter down, it might shake the camera just a little bit so that your stars are no longer sharp. Or you might twist the camera just a little bit. And then your foreground moves just ever so slightly. And in that photo, it becomes blurry. So one of the big things I do is on my one camera, I have a remote always connected to it. At all times, it's connected and it's just wrapped around the camera. So when I need to, I just simply use that button, take the photo, but then it has a locking feature. A lot of people will set the their photo or their camera's intervalometer to three seconds, and then every three seconds it takes the photo. The photo's two and a half seconds, then you have a half second buffer. I'm lazy. I just simply just press the button and it just locks into place and it'll just take constant photos. Um, <laughs> one reason for that is I live in Canada and battery life is awful in Canada, especially in the minus 30. So I just press that button and lock it in place and it just goes. I don't need to worry about AA batteries with me at all times. So the batteries die. I know that the camera's still going to be taking photos because it's just it's a button. It's just a constant press. Um, so that's on one camera and then my other camera, I have the same thing, but I don't leave it connected. I actually just have the internal intervalometer and I just tell it to constantly take its own photos. Just every one second, it'll just take another photo. So as soon as it stops, it takes that one. So that's what I do. I just leave them set up with their intervalometers, whether it's built in or whether it's external and then just let the photos just, just go. Whatever I capture is whatever I capture. And if the photo comes out bad and I have to move it, then... So be it, I might move it two, three times in the night, depending on what I want to try. But I just, I love sitting back and enjoying the show. Kind of makes it more than just photography to me. And now I get to sit back and enjoy. Right. How do you know when you're done? I guess, because essentially you could just let the camera run forever. <laughs> like, what's that balance of getting enough photos and knowing when to pack it up and get into a warm car? Well, that's, that's the million dollar question. I, uh, I'm lucky to live in this area so I can just run home and be done sort of thing. Uh, so that's a, a big question that the Northern Light Chasing is probably your hardest one because when it comes to Milky Way, you can go home at any point. The Milky Way is going to be there tomorrow. Yeah. So it's really not the end of the world if you miss an hour. But if you miss an hour of Aurora, you don't know what you're missing and you might miss the best part of the show. So that really can be difficult. There are things like I watch the data. If the data starts to drop off and it looks awful, then I'll start to pack up and go home. I also think about tomorrow because I do work Monday to Friday, 8 to 4. So I, you know, this night I was up till 1230 and I said, you know what? There's and clouds are still happening, but they'll be out hopefully again tomorrow or the next day. I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to get out and to get photos then. And I got the best part of the show. I got the photo that I wanted. So I'm done. Uh, Monday or Sunday night, I was up taking photos and it was a little cloudy, but not to lose the clouds were out again. I got a really cool photo of an old barn, sunset, all that. And I was actually home. I was probably only taking photos for 10, 15 minutes because the clouds started to move in. And the Noctilus and clouds are still out along the horizon. But I just said to myself, I have a million photos of these. Do I really need these photos? Because with not moving your camera around, I get one photo or two photos from a night, and that's it. Yeah. Because I'm stacking, and I'm only taking one of the skies. So really, out of a full night of, I might come home with 2,000, 3,000 photos. I have three or four photos from that night, and then a time-lapse sequence. So 
uh, if I don't move my camera, if I don't have a different foreground lined up in that spot, then I start thinking about, okay, I've got my one photo that I'm going to post to uh, Instagram or Facebook. That's my photo that I want. I've got enough for a time lapse and then I'm, I'm good. That's enough for me. Let's talk about how to best prepare for something like this because I know that there's a lot, as you were mentioning, in terms of weather. Uh, there's obviously the gear that you got to figure out and just like knowing what are good conditions to be out in. So if somebody's just getting started, like take me for an example, right? I don't, if I were to go out and take photos at night, I would just wait until tonight. I would just go out and just hope for the best, right? Like what are some ways that I can make sure that conditions are going to be fair enough to be able to capture something uh, decent? Yeah. Well, one of the big things is clouds. That's like the one thing everyone has to deal with, unfortunately. Uh, if you can't see the sky, you can't take photos of it. So uh, if you're chasing northern lights, if you're chasing an eclipse, whatever you might be chasing, you, you can't take photos of it if it's cloudy, unless you're chasing clouds, and then you're in good shape. Uh, but no, if you are if you want, the one thing you should really focus on is the clouds. You want to make sure that you're going to a location without clouds. There's apps that give you a good idea, but the best way to tell is just in person and team if there's clouds. I've had plenty of, like, in the comet chase, I, clouds said they were going to be clear to the east, and I went east, and it was cloudy. So uh, that can really mess you up quite a bit. But clouds are, the forecast for clouds is one of your big ones. Uh, if you're going to take photos of the sky or the stars, whatever you might be, you kind of want to get away from the moon. A little bit of moonlight isn't the end of the world. So on the coming off the first quarter moon on either waxing or raining, that's a really good time to go because a little bit of moonlight will light up your foreground, but it doesn't drown out the stars too much. But no moon at all will, will be really dark skies wherever you go. Uh, another location you want is you want to find a spot with no bright lights. So in this case, I'm about 30 minutes out of town in this photo here. And I don't want bright lights to the north because that would drown out the, the dark skies. So I keep the bright lights to myself. They're to behind me. If I'm facing north, my target's to the north. My bright lights are to the south. Uh, if I'm shooting the, the Milky Way, which is to the south, my bright lights are to the, the north behind me. So that's one of the big things is want to get away from the bright lights. So how, like, about how far away do we need to be? You know, I mean, is there some sort of like standard rule? The farther, the better. Um, but unfortunately, that, that can't happen sometimes. You can get to a dark sky preserve, and there's a scale. It's called Bortle Scale. There's Bortle 1, which is incredibly dark skies, and then Bortle 9, which is middle New York, middle Winnipeg. Mm. Um, so you don't want to be in Bortle 9. And I, if I was out taking photos, I'd be wanna, I'd want to be away from Bortle 4 or less. So 4, 3, 2, 1 would be your locations. Uh, it's very rare to get into Portal 1 just because of how bright city lights are getting. Even the small little communities are really taking away from the dark skies. So Portal 1 is quite difficult. For me to get to Portal 1, it's about three hours. But my backyard's in Portal 3, Portal 2, and that's more than enough to take photos of the, the sky. So the further away you can get, and there's maps online. If you look up the maps, Dark Sky Map Finder, you'll be able to see exactly your location and how bright the city lights are and how far they span. But if you go and look, the further away, the better. So even if you can get away 30 minutes outside of the city, it's still going to help and it's still going to get you some practice. But it might not be as much as you would get if you're an hour away from the city. And it depends on how bright the city is. If you're in New York... It might need to go for a bit more of a drive than if I was in Brandon, like my my hometown, for example, which is a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. You said dark sky map there. I'm going to be sure to uh, link that in the show notes because I wouldn't have any idea how to measure, you know, the night sky on my own. So I'm glad that there's other people who do stuff like that so that we can just figure that stuff out uh, on our own. Let's talk about gear a little bit here. It's not something that we talk about very often, but, you know, in in a specialty like this, there's always going to be questions. Uh, I know that there's always a... Uh, debate over full frame crop sensor, you know, zoom prime, you know, what sorts of settings. So can you walk me through what you have found to, uh, to work for you as far as camera and lenses? Uh, what works for me is whatever camera I can get my hands on. So I always like to tell people that the best camera is the one in their, in their hands, whether that's a DSLR, whether it's mirrorless or whether it's your cell phone, I've been out taking photos and my cameras are set up and I'm enjoying the show, but I want to take a photo to post to our Facebook or uh, keep people in the loop. This is what I'm seeing. So quite often I'll just take my phone, set it on my extra tripod or press it up against my boot and put pro mode on it and take a simple photo. And I had someone ask me we'll find a print off that of that photo even though it wasn't even edited of any kind, wow. said, no, sorry, that's on my cell phone, I better quality photos. But photos on your cell phone are fantastic. Uh, the cell phones are getting really good, especially ones within the past two or three years. I would say absolutely get out. You can take photos of them. So um, <clears throat> the gear that I have, I stuck with Canon. I have a Canon 6D Mark II and then a Canon 6D Mark I. Uh, I like them both because they are identical bodies. Uh, the buttons on them are absolutely identical between the two. The only physical difference is one has a flip-out screen, the other one is a fixed screen. So when I'm out in the middle of the night, I don't have to worry about which button I'm pressing because I know them like the back of my hand. Mm-hmm. Both buttons are identical. I just press the, the view button and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> I have a few different lenses. I've got a Tamron 15-30 f2.8. I've got a 24mm f1.4. I've got a 50 millimeter f 1.8 and I love using them all. The Tamron is fantastic, but it is a $1,500 lens. So it is a bit of a, a killer on the budget, yeah. but it is fantastic when it comes to corners and, and just how sharp the, the corners and the stars are. And it's really nice having the, the uh, ability to go between 15 and 30, depending on what you're shooting. But I absolutely love the 50 millimeter and the photo behind me is taken on the Canon's nifty 50 for $150. Wow. That's awesome. And I've got some amazing photos. I've actually been posting a lot of photos on my Instagram of the nifty 50 of what I've been taking with it, just to show that $150 lens on a eight, $900 camera takes some fantastic photos. Um, really it depends on what, what you want to use. I, I would recommend getting a prime if you can just because they're a little bit better when it comes to the night sky, but stick away or get F2.8 or wider. Try to stay away from F4s, especially if your camera is one of the lesser bodies, just because you want wide aperture, which will really help because you can't push your ISO. So when it comes to, uh, you know, the lenses, it seems like everything that you mentioned there uh, was pretty wide. Oh, wow. Look at this. Two episodes in a row, my phone has gone off, even though it's on silent. Something's going on here. Okay. Uh, apologize for that. So no you mentioned there, though, um, most of your lenses are, are definitely on the, uh, on the wider scale there. Is, yeah. there, is that um, specific to landscape astrophotography? 
Definitely. Like I want to keep my my landscape involved. So when I and I use full frame. So when I'm shooting at 24 millimeters, it's quite wide, but it's good for the sky. I want to be able to capture the aurora. I have an 85 millimeter. I have a 120 to 400, but those tend to stay in my bag a lot more often because 85 millimeters doesn't really look great when it comes to aurora. You can't get the cool structure in there. It's pretty much just all green. So when it comes to my style landscape. I want to get 24 millimeters, 15 millimeters. I want to capture that building as well as the the sky and have enough room that you can still see the giant band of the aurora or the giant pillars, depending on what I'm capturing. So I definitely try to stick wider than 50 millimeters. I do want to get a 35 millimeter F1.4 just to play around with. Um, but anything wider than 50 millimeters is kind of my, my forte, my favorite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's talk about... Uh you know we all love gear we all love buying gear has there ever been a piece of gear that you're like i have to have this this is going to make my photos so much better and then at the end of the day didn't really contribute to anything maybe you don't even use it anymore i'd say a remote shutter um i have two of them and i only use one for my canon 60 mark one just because i don't really it doesn't have a built-in intervalometer but the intervalometer for my 60 mark ii is built in and i use it all the time that's my main source of intervalometer so i have two intervalometers in my bag i only use one of them because i have to uh, i think that's one of the things if your camera has a built-in just use what you have um, tripods don't, I wouldn't spend seven $800 on a tripod. I've got a few of the $100 or $50 tripods from Amazon, and they're fantastic. I do have a, a two or $300 tripod now that I absolutely love. But tripods, I would just get something that's sturdy. You don't need to spend a million dollars on your tripod. Um, other than that, a nice red light for at night if you want a headlamp and with a nice red light on it, because red will make your eyes, will keep your night vision. Uh, white light makes your eyes clamp down and then you have to readjust as soon as you turn the light off but if you have red you can still see at night and look up at the stars and you can still see with ease what what's happening in the night sky oh that's awesome yeah so red light is definitely your your best friend in night sky and they have like headlamps with uh with red yeah. lights inside i love that i'm gonna uh, have to check actually that. Most headlamps out there have that red light built in, and people don't realize what it's for, but it's for your your night vision. Not necessarily just for nighttime photography, but anything. If you're running around at night and you need a little bit of light, but you also don't want to lose your night vision, that little red light is really handy. Right. I always remember, um, you know, one of my favorite movies growing up was The Hunt for Red October, and I always remember there was some scene, I don't remember exactly what the scene was, but it was just like the whole... Everything within the submarine was like red. And I remember asking like my my stepdad at the time, like, why why is it why why wouldn't they use just like white lights? And that's pretty much what he said. He was like, Ooh, yeah, no, that can really screw up your eyes, you know, using the, the red light really helps. So that's good to know that uh I guess when you're out in this sort of uh you know, condition and you're you're really trying to get work done as far as your camera goes, you're not gonna screw anything up there. So I got I got another question for you here, and that is when it comes to um, you know astrophotography, I want to know what is it what is it that you love more about it? Is it the is it the getting out and just shooting, or is it the final product? Uh, the getting out definitely. The final product is just icing on the cake. I love being able to share my final photos and say, look what I captured. But getting out is the best part. If I didn't enjoy getting out, I wouldn't be doing this. It uh, Most nights, I just, especially setting up your camera and being able to just set it up and, and enjoy the night, 
that's why I focus on that so much is because I get to enjoy my night sky and I get to see it for myself. Um, when I'm involved with a lot of people on nights that the northern lights are out or whether or not there's not closing clouds, whatever might be out, my goal is to enjoy it for myself. I want to be off my phone as much as possible. I don't want to be sitting behind a camera going, oh, this is a perfect shot. I want to just sit back and enjoy it. I want to time lapse of that, that night because I can go back and watch it and go, oh, I remember that. I, I remember seeing that part dance and, and really cool parts. But then I just enjoy sitting back and enjoying it. So I would definitely say that the chase itself, the seeing new locations, the being able to try out new things is great, but just enjoying it and sitting back and going, this is my life. I get to sit and watch the stars. A lot of people wish they, they had that. I get to watch the Northern Lights multiple times a month and just enjoy it. I bet there's a lot of people listening right now thinking, yep, I wish I could do that. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Uh Justin, is there anything that I uh, didn't ask you today that you want to make sure that people know or understand fully about astrophotography? Yeah, I would say that there's so many people out there that that do it that you don't realize are out there. Um, I can speak for Canada just because that's where I'm from. But when it comes to Northern Lights especially or the astrophotography groups, uh, Canada has different locations and different Facebook groups. Facebook is your best friend when it comes to it. There's Art of Night Photography groups. There's Astrophotography, Milky Way Photography groups. There's so many groups out there that they're made to help you learn. Uh, when it comes to Northern Lights, I run a group called Manitoba Aurora and Astronomy, and our entire purpose is to let people know that there's stuff happening in the night sky. If the Northern Lights are happening, we keep people up to date so that they see that the Northern Lights are out. Well, I'll actually post saying, hey, Northern Lights look really good tonight. I would recommend going out. And the entire comment section on that post, which we call a thread, is filled with people saying, I'm at so-and-so location and this is what I'm seeing. I'm at so-and-so location. Oh, did you guys just see that really bright meteor? So we try to keep people up to date, especially with the Aurora. Not so much with Night Sky on, for threads, just because, you know, it's kind of consistent with night skies <laughs> every single night <laughs> for, yeah for aurora it's a little bit more we keep people up to date and we're talking the entire time and i'll say you know i'm, I'm sitting at home right now and oh i think it's time i'm gonna go for a drive the data is looking really good uh there's manitoba aurora and astronomy saskatchewan aurora hunters alberta aurora chasers there is great lakes aurora hunters i think it is and they're for the great lakes in canada and the u.s that's a great area all around michigan i believe um, and there's so many different groups out there. Once you move further down into the southern states, there's a lot of astrophotography groups, but look for your locals. Um, most states, most provinces have their own photography groups of astrophotography, and they're filled with a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I bet. You know, people are definitely more knowledgeable than I, for sure. And I'm sure that, now correct me if I'm wrong, are groups like this typically pretty welcoming of, of of new people who are you know just trying to get started into something like this if somebody's listening and they want to learn more about it would this be a good place for them to start absolutely the, the groups there they all they want is people to learn and, and follow their passion as well um i know for me if someone posts in the group saying hey i'm looking at getting a camera well i'm first one in there saying this is what i recommend this is this is what i would do personally uh, if someone's asking questions we actually have guides in our group 
that will have all your questions answered. So your your, your quick little uh, frequently asked questions are in there. If you want to learn more about how to take photos, there's a full guide on how to take photos in the night sky in there. If you want to learn how to chase the Northern Lights and how to actually predict them for yourself, there's full guides on how to understand that there from a beginner to an intermediate. I have that all on my website as well. So our, our whole purpose is that we want our community to grow. And if, where we try to keep everyone included. I have so many people, whether it's people in their late 50s, 60s, or whether it's someone, I have. I know someone who's 15 just down the road from me who's learning all about uh, chasing the Northern Lights. And he's actually messaged me multiple times saying, hey, get out, look, they're out. And he's beat me to it. So uh, <laughs> there's so many people out there that are, are just a wealth of knowledge and are we're, we're willing to teach too. So, and it's great to see people get involved because the more people that can get involved, more people that can help newcomers and then the, the hobby gets to grow and there's nothing better than meeting a, another photographer out at night when you're out taking photos yeah no that is fun it's always the camaraderie there is always great justin before yeah. i let you go uh you know i gotta say thank you obviously for coming on and sharing as much as you did uh, this has been a great chat i can tell that you're very passionate about this uh, it came through in the interview i really appreciate it for those listening who are thinking the exact same thing right now, where can they find you online and see some uh, some of your work? Yeah, for sure. My uh, my photography is all uh, my name. So it's Aurora and then Jay Anderson. You can find me on Instagram at Aurora Jay Anderson. Twitter, it's Aurora Jay Anderson. On Facebook, that was taken, so I'd use Aurora Justin Anderson. So that works as well. Um, you can find me on the on Facebook at uh, the Manitoba Aurora and Astronomy. You'll see me posting there a ton, just because I'm the one that created that group. But Aurora J Aurora Justin Anderson on Facebook is the one where you can find me. My website is aurorajanderson.com. So feel free to go there. You can check out all my photos. You can ask about if you're interested in buying a print. I also have a lot of blogs about what you can expect for the night sky each month. Uh, as well as what uh, my comet chase, I have that entire thing recorded so you can read through it and see the photos I took throughout the entire sequence of all 12 nights and how I struggled with that sometimes and, and the entire battle. Uh, a lot of videos are on there as well and I'm working on putting up some more tutorials on how I edit as well as uh, I have lessons coming up. So if you actually want a one-on-one -on -one lesson with me learning how to take photos with your own camera, those are coming up here as well soon. Um, and then uh, lots of information on Aurora Jason as well. So if you're either going up north or you live, I'd say in the northern states or anywhere in Canada, really, and you want to learn how to chase the northern lights for yourself, there's tons of information from beginner levels to intermediate levels there. Tell you what, I thought that Indiana was cold in the winter, but we got nothing on Canada. So the fact that Justin is more than happy to get out in the frigid cold temperatures and spend a good amount of time outside just to take some beautiful photos of uh, the sky, I think truly is a testament to how much he truly finds joy and uh, has a passion for what it is that he photographs. And I think at the end of the day, it's that that is really going to help um, – improve his craft right we can you know learn all the technical skills and abilities of a style of photography but if you don't actually go out and you do it and better yet enjoy it then 
what is it all really for, you know? So if you're finding that maybe you're in a rut or you're kind of stuck with your photography, ask yourself, how can you put some more passion back into what it is that I'm shooting here? And I promise you, you're going to find a lot more joy uh, and enjoyment out of what it is that you're shooting and, and how it is that you shoot it. And obviously sharing those photos. So I would love to hear your biggest takeaway from this episode, uh, this interview with Justin. Feel free to come on into the Beginner Photography Podcast Facebook community. It is a growing community of uh, great photographers who are, you know, open and honest and always happy to help. And it's one of the safest places on the internet for new photographers, if I do say so myself. I think that you're going to have a good time. So come on into the uh, group, join the community, and let me know, what was your biggest takeaway from this? Are you going to go out and start shooting the stars? Are you going to start chasing the aurora? Do you live in a place where there is the aurora? Have you taken photos of the aurora? Lots of questions there. And also, remember, don't forget to check out USBMemoryDirect.com. Remember, custom USB flash drives can make a beautiful physical keepsake for your clients uh, that give continuous brand impressions over their lifetime. When somebody sees your name continually, they're going to remember you. You're going to stay top of mind, which means that they're going to keep coming back for more shoots with you, which is great if you do family, portrait photography, headshots, anything like that. Maybe you don't want to repeat clients with, uh, with weddings, but you could definitely get them coming back for anniversary sessions. Typically, families uh, grow out of a wedding, so you can continue uh, growth that way. And many photographers actually use USB flash drives as like a promotional handout. So if you're doing a, a wedding fair or you know you meet with a potential client, you can give them a custom flash drive with your information on it, and then uh, you know you can put all of your 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 wedding collections or your pricing collections on about you, maybe even a promotional video about yourself, and just think about the impact that that has on somebody. So Suddenly you're not some fly-by-night photographer, but you are a real genuine photographer with, you know, custom professional branding. It's really going to stand out. And USB Memory Direct can help you do that. So again, check them out. Use the code FLASH15 for 15% off your first custom order of flash drives at USBMemoryDirect.com. So that is it for today. Until next week, I want you to get out, and I just want you to shoot as much as you can. Because remember, the more time that you spend behind the camera, the better you get at photography. So with that, until next week, uh, stay safe. I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the Beginner Photography Podcast. If you enjoy the show, consider leaving a review in iTunes. Keep shooting, and we'll see you next week.